Welcome to the Kennedy Beacon Podcast. I'm Francis Scott here with Aaron Good. Hey, Aaron. Hi, Francis. Great to be here. We have a lot to talk about today, this week. Julian Assange, immigration, the Biden administration refusing to give Robert F. Kennedy Jr. secret service protection, a lot going on. Also here with us, Louis Conti, the headlines editor at the Kennedy Beacon. It is great to see you, Louis. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. I'm glad you're joining us. Of course, Assange case is top of the list right now. On Tuesday and Wednesday of this past week, his people, his attorneys were in court in the UK, of course, fighting for extradition. They do not want to see him brought back to the U.S. to face charges. He faces 17 counts of violation of the Espionage Act here in the U.S. And of course, the the story, if you recall, Chelsea Manning allegedly hacked into a government computer, got all these documents, all this you know information about communications that was confidential, and then sent it to Assange, who then published it in 2010 on WikiLeaks. This week, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., who has been supporting Assange and saying, hey, we need to pardon this guy, we need to drop all charges and not extradite him to the U.S., obviously. This is what he said this week about Assange. Let's listen. It was from X. You all know that Julian Assange is a heroic whistleblower. He stood up for democracy. He stood against the surveillance state. He stood against government corruption. He's battled for all of our freedoms. And he made the tremendous sacrifice where he now is jailed and faces life imprisonment and extradition to the United States. The urgency to pardon him cannot wait. It can't wait till I become president. We need to get it done now. Please sign the petition urging President Biden to immediately pardon Julian Assange. Thank you all very much. I want to start off by saying that Assange's lawyers have reintroduced the matter of plans that were drawn up by the CIA at the president, or sorry, at the behest of then President Donald Trump to assassinate Assange back when he was holed up at the Ecuadorian embassy in London and the Belmarsh prison where Assange has been held for almost five years since being ejected from that embassy is referred to as Biden's Guantanamo Bay because suspected terrorists, or sorry, Britain's Guantanamo Bay because suspected terrorists are held there for long periods of time without being charged. Um, and it's, I would add as an aside here that my understanding is the reason that the Ecuadorian uh, embassy was able to uh, have him kicked out of there well, had to do with the election of kind of a, an American stooge as president who also um, received a huge loan from the IMF right around the same time that uh, some people say was essentially a bribe for this. So this is a horrible thing. Assange has been unable to attend his own hearings at times because of ill health and the poor treatment he's experienced at uh, Belmarsh prison. In 2021, a judge ruled that Assange should not be extradited because his mental health, uh, mental condition, put him at a high risk of suicide. So let's talk about why he's even there in the first place. Um, as Francis mentioned, Assange is accused of conspiring with Chelsea Manning to obtain top secret documents. Um, and this is something that is has come up before in U.S. history, the Dan Ellsberg case and so on. Uh, they ruled on this that people who publish classified material can't be prosecuted. 
Uh, that was the, they tried to go after the New York Times and Washington Post and so on, other outlets that had post that had published the Pentagon Papers. So this seems to be settled law, and yet it's not. So hence the Assange case. Yeah, and obviously Kennedy, one who has been censored himself, especially before he announced that he was running for president, taken off YouTube, Instagram, and a lot of channels where he had a lot of followers. He is passionate about this and does not believe, obviously, in censorship. He has said many, many times, and Lewis, I'm interested in your perspective on this, being a friend of Kennedy's, more discussion, more transparency, more information, not less, is what this country needs. So tell me your thoughts about this. Well, you know, uh, as Bobby has said, the uh, the anecdote to disinformation, malinformation, bad information is more information. Uh, the way to address um, issues uh, that, uh, you know, that where the government is doing things we don't like is to talk about them. They work for us. And that that seems to be completely lost here. And yet, you know, Aaron, thank you for saying you know, when you go back to Ellsberg and the Pentagon Papers and that whole time frame, this is settled law. He simply did what a journalist does. You know, I overheard, I didn't overhear it, but I, a conversation uh, and Matt, on Matt Taibbi's podcast where he says, you know, we talk a lot about journalists being noble or whatever, but you really don't want them in your house you know, kind of burrowing around because that's what journalists do. They're inconvenient. They're annoying. They find out things that the government wants to keep secret, but that's their role in a healthy democracy. And Julian Assange, in my opinion, didn't do anything other than fulfill his obligation to democracy here. Bobby's 100% right. Absolutely. And as a as a journalist or former journalist, I, I've had my daughter say that many often, like, you're, you're no fun to live with, always poking around. <laughs> you know, we can't, we're watching for what the courts decide in the UK. The decision will come in weeks. But I want to remind you, the papers have already been signed. So the UK officials, if they wanted to, could put him on a plane and get him back to the US before this podcast even ends. Right. And this is a very disturbing thing. And it reflects uh, that our system of government isn't really what we are told that it is. It's not just that they're prosecuting a, a journalist. You have to think, why are they prosecuting a journalist? Right. And the reason is that he has exposed things about the way that we are governed, which involves much more lawlessness and state secrecy than the Constitution calls for or and more than civics classes and politicians and other people who are proselytizers about American greatness and American democracy, more than they want to admit, it is a system that is not what it purports to be. And Assange's crime in the eyes of the regime is that he tore away the veil with some of these uh, exposures that, that is really what a journalist is supposed to do. And so he is essentially being prosecuted and perhaps even ultimately be killed for doing uh, what the Constitution requires a journalist to do. I mean, the Constitution, our Constitution, our system demands a free press and an informed public, and they don't want that. And hence they go after Assange, uh, as we're seeing. Now, I, I wanna move on to this next clip of RFK Jr. Um, helping out at a food bank in Queens that provides uh, assistance for recent, quote, illegal immigrants. It is, ironically, a somewhat uplifting story. 
Mr. Kennedy, many of the people online were migrants. Uh, we're obviously dealing with the migrant crisis on the city, and it's burdening many of the food pantries here. Can you talk a little bit more to that issue? And what do you think of many of the people coming here for food are migrants? Well, I think, you know, what Cage is doing is the way that we ought to handle migrants once they're here, which is with compassion and with generosity and, our, and with kindness that our country is supposed to represent. The problem is, you know, we're a, we're a nation. We need to have secure borders. We need to make, be making sure the people who come in this country are people who have gone through the process, that we have wide gates and a fast class to citizenship, a fast track to citizenship. Uh, but we, you know, having 7 million people come across the border illegally in three years is not good for them. Is it this incentivizing? Is this incentivizing at all illegal immigration by how well we treat migrants? No, this is, people are not coming into our country to eat at food kitchens. Asia and Eric are dealing with an emergency that's been created by the federal government and by other people. They're coming here because they want jobs. And that's good. We need immigrants to fill the jobs so that we can support a middle class in this country so that we can support make keep soluble our social security system. But like every other country in the world, we need to control that issue. We do not want our immigration policy dictated by the Sinaloa cartel, which is now running U.S. immigration policy. There is no nation that could survive just an open border. There's none. And yet that's what we have now in the United States. Lewis, since you're the only one here who lives in New York, what are your thoughts about this huge influx of immigrants? And uh, first of all, is it as bad as it is shown to be on the MSM, uh, mainstream media? Uh, what do you think, Kennedy? What do you think about what Kennedy is saying here? Well, the first thing I take from this is he's trying to, to bring, um, first of all, compassion, uh, some organization, some structure to this conversation. Uh, you know, uh, where I live, I live in Westchester, a little bit north of New York City. Um, I am in the city uh, often. Um, and to me, the city is in better shape than it was during the lockdown. Uh, that certainly was a haunting experience. Um, it, it is absolutely true that we are having uh, legal problems. Um, we have uh, immigrants who are getting arrested, some very high profile cases. Um, but I also think in some ways that some of the media coverage is unfair to these human beings, right? I mean, it seems to me that while uh, the, the problems at the southern border are very real, um, we need to remember that, you know, as Bobby points out, these human beings, they need to be treated with compassion. Uh, the process of them getting here is atrocious. In terms of the impact on New York City, um, there is a huge financial impact. Uh, it's a, you know, a very controversial issue. Um, and many New Yorkers on different sides of it uh, have a bunch of, uh, of, of different feelings about it. But the primary problem is that this is chucked together uh, in a disorganized fashion. Um, it seems to me that the Biden administration decided that if Donald Trump wanted something. They wanted the 180-degree polar opposite of it. Uh, and so they now have a situation where they've lost control of the southern border. Uh, these folks in the Mexican cartels are bad people. Uh, and uh, turning over our, our 
are boarded to them is a train wreck, in, in my opinion. The, there are impacts. There is cost. Um, we have laws in New York in particular, uh, and I, I know this because I've worked uh, uh, and I, I was a school board member. But it, when If a child is in our district, we have to educate them, right? And there's a cost to that. Uh, you know, I don't know how much this is being felt outside of New York City, um, but there is an impact. Uh, and you have to plan, as Bobby says, for that for that impact. You just can't open everything up and, and, and have chaos. Yeah, we're in Texas here, Lewis and Aaron, and um, my husband works with people in Chicago. They're having the same issues in Chicago. Of course, the Texas governor being criticized by places where these migrants or immigrants are ending up for his, you know, busing the immigrants to other states. Here in Austin, we have had such an issue with homelessness um, that is, is particularly bad in the past couple of years. Um, it's it really you start to understand the weaponization of compassion. You you want to be compassionate. You want to be smart. These are human beings, whether they're you know struggling with homelessness and the cost of housing, or you know they they didn't have a good place to live before and they're seeking asylum. But like Kennedy has pointed out in many of the productions that his campaign has released about you know hey we've got to take care of these people, but it is not in their best interest to have them sign up to come with whoever it is, bringing them across a very dangerous area. You know, I'll never forget Kennedy talking about the rape crisis center that he visited the first time he went to the border in Arizona and how some of those people had been put through the worst thing they could ever imagine. So, you know, it reminds me too, uh, like the six foot distance, the COVID issues, like Nobody wants to kill grandma. Nobody wants to kill strangers. We want to be compassionate. But at the same time, are we doing things that in the long run are going to be very detrimental to large groups of people, including our nation as a whole? So, Lewis, one thing I'd like you to comment on, I don't know if this is in your wheelhouse exactly. So uh, hopefully you think it's relevant. But I've noticed that Kennedy is not someone who takes what you'd th consider like a cliche, um, you know, bleeding heart liberal position on immigration. Uh, but he does, as we see in this clip here, urge a compassion and a sensible approach to the human beings that do make it here and are not really at fault in a, in the larger sense for these situations. And the, but the aspect that I am really fascinated on, about or by, and that seems important to, to note about what Kennedy has said on this is that he focuses on the effect of U.S. foreign policy in creating immigrants. And even if you just take the Mexico issue, I mean, our, the relationship of the U.S. to, to Mexico and their economy, the fact that the most, the richest man in Mexico, I believe basically just sort of used connections to be able to take over the telephone networks and such like Carlos Slim. It was all like privatization of things that should have probably been in the public domain. And then one guy just says, uses political connections to say like, yeah, well, I own it. And that's a kind of neoliberal political economy that fuels the the, uh, the the conditions that create immigration. So how do you how do you think that on the other side of things, Kennedy's foreign policies might impact this issue because he looks at it from both sides he's also saying like let's make things better in these other countries by not having the u.s right. as this villainous force 
that creates bad social conditions that fuel immigration. You know, one of the things, um, and I've learned this from reading Bobby's writings, but also from my own study, is we have been entirely too focused. We've had a Eurocentric focus to our foreign policy. Uh, and then in recent years, a Middle East uh, um, you know, focus to our foreign policies, because that's where oil comes from, et cetera, and, and all the rest of the historical drama there. We have not given enough uh, focus uh, and uh, compassion and uh, direction to our foreign policy as it applies to our neighbors to the South. Uh, and so I think that, um, you know, we need to start to do that. Uh, it seems to me that our foreign policy begins kind of with intimidation uh, and, and, you know, and then kind of stops there. Uh, one of the one of the things I'm hopeful about is that, you know, uh, I think Bobby has the ability uh, to open conversations with people uh, on a more meaningful basis. Um, for instance, we've now decided we're not going to talk to Vladimir Putin no matter what. Right. And so we've got the situation raging out of control uh, in the Ukraine uh, in a war that uh, I don't think. Is uh, is going to be winnable for that country? Um, you have to talk to people. Foreign policy has to be more than just about, you know, building bombs. It has to be about relationships. It has to be about ongoing conversations. I mean, the first thing Bobby said about the board—not the first—I think it was on his list of things he'd do on day one—is I'm calling the president of Mexico. We're going to get on the phone and we're going to have a conversation about how to manage this thing so that everyone's interests are met at some point in the future. It's not a one day fix. We should be clear about that. This is a mess. It's going to take some cleaning up. But that's the kind of thing that I think Bobby brings to the table. And whenever I see him talk about foreign policy, it's always about the conversations we should have uh, across the world. Uh, with, with everybody, understanding we don't always agree. We don't have to like everybody, but we have to talk to them. And I, I think it's just a very common sense approach. Um, you know, and it, as I study him, that's what I see him doing. Absolutely. And you can see when he talks about his childhood and growing up around you know, John F. Kennedy and his father and the conversations that they were having with Russian diplomats. Um, you you understood that he saw that example set. You have a line and maybe you don't always listen to your advisors or the military guys saying we have to do this. We have to do this. He saw it played out. And that's why, you know, I think he has a really good mindset about the way to be when you are a leader you do have to speak to these people. So that's a great point. I do want to bring up and change gears a little bit and talk about the lack of secret service protection. The Biden administration repeatedly refusing to give Robert F. Kennedy Jr. secret service protection. And there's a, there's a show called Breaking Points. There was some conversation about that. Let's take a quick listen to it. Robert F. Kennedy Jr. is slamming what he says is a heinous double standard after a congressional advisory panel voted yes to awarding GOP candidate Nikki Haley with Secret Service protection, but not RFK Jr. Kennedy wrote on X of this move, while I'm happy she'll be protected and publicly supported her request, 
Double standards abound. My campaign first requested Secret Service protection in May of 2023 with a 63-page declaration. We still have a current request pending. Kennedy continued, my request is the first time in 55 years a candidate has ever been denied. The Biden administration is the sole outlier to turn down a request for Secret Service coverage. So this is very interesting. So Nikki Haley receiving protection as she, you know, continues to technically be a a Republican primary candidate on that side, although Donald Trump overwhelmingly likely to get the nomination. You know, and RFK Jr. has been complaining for some time that he was has not gotten um, uh, so uh, 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 security protection, Secret Service protection from uh, from the administration. The process for getting Secret Service protection involves a panel of actually congressional leaders uh, getting together and deciding whether to recommend um, this protection, and then the ultimate decision is made by. Uh, Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas, who has denied it to RFK Jr. thus far. There was a lot of reporting pointing out that at, at the time at which RFK Jr. had initially asked for it, it was way, way, way in, in advance of the election, uh, much further in advance than is usual. Although I was just reading from ABC News more about how this is working. Apparently, Barack Obama, when he was a candidate in, um, in, uh, in what, the 2008 election, um, did receive Secret Service protection pretty far far out in advance. So did, um, so did uh, uh, candidates in subsequent cycles, Herman Cain, Donald Trump. You know, it has to do with the level of the, the threat assessment for have people threaten them, that kind of thing. RFK Jr. did have an angry person with a gun interrupt one of his events. He's paying for his private security. But frankly, what's offered by the Secret Service is much more robust. Um, I'm not really understanding the argument for not granting him protection, frankly. And, uh, and the administration hasn't offered one. A quick reminder here that the murder of Robert F. Kennedy, Robert F. Kennedy Jr.'s father, is why we had Secret Service protection in the first place. It's shocking. It has been shocking. And we've written about this at The Beacon. Lewis, you can probably speak to this, too. I remember one piece, you know, Bobby Kennedy's life is in your hands. It was kind of a, a piece at The Beacon on Substack, The Kennedy Beacon on Substack, which you should all go and read. Um, to President Biden saying Kennedy's life's in your hands, essentially. You know, I think that this is more of um, I have a grimmer view. Some people have said that Biden is doing this to try to make them have to spend more money. I have a grimmer view of, of this. I think that when you look at how they will just throw the Constitution out the window to to go after Assange and maybe, you know, even end, end Assange, I mean, plot his assassination and or kill him in prison one way or the other. I mean, I think you're talking about a very dark force uh, that is at the top of this regime that really doesn't believe in democracy or anything else. It believes in top-down rule. Uh, you could call it the establishment, the deep state, whatever you want to call it. But I, my take on this is that is is darker in that I, I I think that Biden is taking cues from some other elements to not provide this protection. And if it comes down to it and he is assassinated, then the story will be, oh, Biden, why didn't you do this? It was, uh, you should have done this bad thing. Biden, I'm, even as possibly demented as he may be, um, probably still understands this and he does it dutifully. Like he carries out other policies that have damaged his own standing because that seems to be what powerful actors want. So I, I feel that there's a lot of grim reality uh, pertaining to our system in this one story. I mean, the assassination of his father, the fact that they are basically 
in in some way there's some leverage of the prospect of assassination being exerted on Kennedy by virtue of what they're doing now. It's pretty horrifying to me. And uh, Lewis, you've you've written about this uh, over over a good stretch of time, going back a ways now. What do you think about it here now in in later February, and we still don't have uh, any Secret Service protection for this presidential candidate? You know, uh, Aaron, I think you're right. Uh, I think part of uh, part of the problem here, uh, we don't, uh, of course, we don't really see the decision making process. Uh, Judicial Watch did some excellent reporting on this uh, and basically identified that Mayorkas kind of did what he wanted to. Um, But we don't know what conversations he had, right? Um, What I think is that part of it is financial to bleed the campaign. Uh, As I read through the headlines every day, uh, DNC aligned legacy media constantly makes the point of you know, the campaign doesn't have finance. And we are not the campaign. Let me say that we are uh, associated with the super PAC. So we, we don't know what the campaign's finances are. But I read these stories where they, they seem to be saying, oh, he's running out of money because he's burning through it as though, you know, uh, you know, all, all this, uh, th- there's activity here that shouldn't be going on. A lot of resources go to security for very good reason. Right. Uh, and. Um, you know, I think in looking over uh, the images I saw of the man who showed up at the, the event in September, that that man was going to do something. Uh, and quite frankly, uh, the people working with Gavin DeBecker uh, m- may well have prevented uh, a very serious and deadly incident that day. Uh, this is why you need a president who was functioning. Okay, I understand that I have people around me who want to do things for political reasons. Um, But uh, I'm the president. This is not what we do. You give this man secret service protection. It's what Jimmy Carter uh, did for Kennedy Kennedy uh, and and, uh, Ted Kennedy. uh, And they they didn't like each other. Right? Uh, And he was, you know, Ted Kennedy was running against Jimmy Carter, who was the the incumbent at the time. They put that stuff aside. It is damaging to the country uh, if we have some sort of other, uh, another issue here. Yeah. Uh, And Kennedy brings up, Bobby Kennedy brings up so often when he's asked about this, are you afraid? He immediately goes straight to every time we've had, you know, a shooting of, of Reagan, of my father, of my uncle, there are always other people who are hurt in this process. So that's something that he continually brings up. I worry for my family. I worry about these very public events where this sort of thing could happen. And considering there have been two incidents, including one in which a man came to his home, got on his property, and Kennedy's you know private security detail caught him, turned him over. He was taken away. He came right back. You have to look at these significant threats to not just Kennedy, but to the people around him and realize this is something that is reasonable. I believe, Aaron, you probably know this, at, at about 140 days before the election, that's when he will be given Secret Service protection. It was my understanding that there's a window in which he has to be given, but he is a serious contender. There is a credible threat to him. And considering his family history, I mean, you just have to shake your head when you see what the White House is doing and denying him Secret Service protection. 
Yeah, I, I do. And I mean, it's not as if the Secret Service protection is the most, you know, um, uh, heartening thing to begin with. I mean, JFK's Secret Service protection is quite dubious. I, having spent a lot of time studying the Kennedy assassination, the JFK assassination, I would conclude that it's quite likely that the Secret Service was involved in this at the very top, not not as completely as an organization. But the guy running the Treasury was a, a guy named Douglas Dillon, and uh, his family, the Dillon is the Dillon Reed family, a Wall Street banking house. And these were it was lawyers from Dillon Reed who wanted who got help to get the CIA created in the first place, like James Forstall, Ferdinand Eberstadt, guys in the '40s did this. And uh, this guy, Reed, or uh, sorry, Dylan, had previously been an advisor to Eisenhower and his foreign policy uh, board, and he endorsed the idea uh, of assassinating Patrice Lumumba in the Congo because he's a Wall Street investment banker and investment invested capital around the world is very, very lucrative. And just the policy uh, transition from Kennedy to Johnson, you had trillions of dollars in wealth in the Congo and in Indonesia that really went over to U.S. hands just based on the death of Kennedy because his policies were really reversed. And so the Secret Service itself, it has been, it's a dubious enterprise typically controlled by financial oligarchs because it's the Treasury. And who do they appoint to run the Treasury is some Wall Street person. So it's not as if the Secret Service itself is like guaranteed safety. I mean, JFK found that out very well. But at least then you understand who is responsible for the security of the president uh, or this presidential candidate. And so this is, I think, uh, a very important thing to focus on. And it, it does have very dark uh, yeah, undercurrents and a, and a history. So I think it's, a, it's, it's, it's great that, that people are highlighting this issue. Yeah. Lewis, do you have any last words before we close up shop? Uh, first of all, Aaron, thank you for that history. I, I, I learned stuff there. I did not know that. Uh, and, um, you know, uh, I think that this issue in particular, um, you know, before people see the news roundup and, uh, you know, in the middle of the day, uh, there are drafts written. Um, and I will tell you that there have been times <laughs> where my language around describing this issue, uh, I've really had to step back from the computer and uh, edit it down a bit. Um, because uh, this makes me angry. This is reckless uh, policy thinking. Uh, it is, frankly, stupid behavior. If something bad happens, the damage to the country, uh, you know, uh, it, uh, of course, there are people here we all care about, right, uh, and that we want to see succeed. Um, but success is also an election where there isn't violence, where there's order. And uh, and that, you know, the people make their decision and we should be careful about this. And we anybody at this point now, this is not so far away. Our candidates, whoever they are, should be protected. Indeed. To uh, some wisdom thoughts some wisdom there from both of you. Thank you so much for your insight. Thank you, Louis Conti, for joining us today. Thank you, the viewers at home, for joining us here at the Kennedy Beacon Podcast. I want to invite you to follow this show, subscribe, like it, send it to your friends, and also check out the Kennedy Beacon, which is a substack. If you don't know what substack is, it's essentially like a digital app for publication. You're going to find great stuff there, great writings, opinions, reporting on Rob 
Robert F. Kennedy Jr. and his run for the presidency. Thank you so much for joining us. And we hope you will join us again next week for the Kennedy Beacon podcast.